This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, welcome to Diplomates. I'm Misha Zielinski. This week I caught up with Professor Rory Medcalf. He's the head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. A journalist, intelligence agency analyst, diplomat, academic and thinker, Rory is one of the world's leading experts on geopolitical strategy, and his work has contributed to recent Australian government defence policy. Rory is recognised as a thought leader internationally by his acclaimed 2020 book, Contest for the Indo-Pacific. Available in all good bookstores, there you go, Rory, I've got the plug-in. I caught up with Rory for a chinwag about the US election and why the stakes are so high for Australia, whether the CCP or Russia might pull a move in the case of a litigated US election outcome, how Australia should manage an assertive CCP, why democracies should be more confident, why minilateralism is a new multilateralism, and why it's time Australia got serious about India and Indonesia. It's a huge chat. Rory's one of the best thinkers going around in this space. I really hope you enjoy it. As ever, if you've got the time, please jump on, rate and review the show, five stars. It really does help. I should also say very quickly, this is the 30th episode of Diplomates. So thank you to everyone who stuck by me for for 30 episodes um, of varying quality. I hope that they've uh, provided some enjoyment as we've gone along. Without any further delay, enjoy the episode. Rory Metcalf, welcome to Diplomates, mate. How are you? Uh, very well, thanks, Misha. Great to be uh, great to be on. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. Now, um, you know, always so many places we can start, and it's probably a topic that's been done to death, but you almost can't ignore it. It's the elephant in the room: the U.S. election. But I kind of want to approach it. I mean, we could talk about the horse race all day about who's going to win, but I kind of wanted to approach it firstly. Kind of, what are the stakes here? I mean, does it matter? Firstly. Does it matter for Australia? And then also, what does it matter in a, in a global context? Look, it's hard to say anything particularly new and enlightening on this subject. Everyone seems to be a, a pundit on the US election or on its significance in world affairs. Look, I'd, what I'd say is that, you know, of course it matters for Australia's interests and security. And it matters perhaps... Uh, in, in more in an indirect way than an immediate direct way. I mean, I, I do put a lot of weight on the importance of, um, I guess, American credibility in the world. I don't think we have to think about American leadership quite in the way that we used to. And, of course, American leadership and credibility have both taken an enormous hit in the last few years uh, for obvious reasons. I, I think, though, that we we shouldn't underestimate the potential the United States still has to be a formidable player in world affairs. And so I, I see this election really as a chance to firstly ar- arrest the damage, uh, arrest the decline, secondly to begin the, the, the very big repair job that needs to take place, and thirdly to also take, I guess, any salvage any positives out of the past few years. And the the main positive I talk about there, despite all of the harm that Trump personally and his administration have done, is the the bipartisan awareness in the United States about the China challenge. Uh, That's the, you know, that's, if you like, the one positive, or in fact the second positive being the 
the reawakening of the importance of democratic participation uh, in so much of the American uh, population. I think salvage those things, begin the repair job. Either way, uh, this matters profoundly for Australia and for our Indo-Pacific region. So you've talked a bit about, you know, US leadership, or US credibility. Um, one thing I wanted to describe, yeah, and you're right, there's a lot of pundits out there, so we'll, we'll focus on perhaps your subject uh, areas of expertise. But one of the things that's been tossed up is what happens um, if there's a contentious election and what happens if uh, for a period, uh, maybe like in 2000, where it, where, where it went on and on, there was recounts or was contested or it was a particularly contentious election with litigation. Um, Peter Jennings from Aspie has been on this show before. I mean, he's floated, uh, you know, potentially you could see some aggression from the Chinese Communist Party uh, in respect to Hong Kong or Taiwan. You might see Russian aggression in Europe. I mean, how do you, how do you see something like that in a, in, a, in a lame duck scenario where the US is internally focused and not able to externally focus um, on its security guarantees around the world? Look, that's obviously a... A risk. I also worry about what that internal um, crisis might look like inside America, because of course, in many ways, um, the and I'll you know I'll take sides here. I mean, I, I would prefer to see a Biden victory, but in many ways, a downside of a Biden victory, unless it's really decisive and really clear up front, is the way in which Trump or parts of Trump's base could really exploit the situation internally over a few months and you could see some very significant unrest uh, within within the United States. As to the external, the foreign exploitation of that situation, look, I tend to think that even when uh, China is at its most opportunistic and its most adventurous under um, the current leadership, uh, I think there's still a recognition that there's, uh, there's a, that there would be a lot of risk in, for example, you know, seizing this as the moment to take Taiwan by force, seizing this as the moment for some other uh, aggressive action internationally. So on balance, um, I think the Chinese aren't going to be quite that crazy. Uh, Russia's a different kettle of fish, of course, because uh, I think Russia has made something of a constant of its interference in American processes over the past few years. And I tend to think that Russia thinks, or the Russian leadership uh, operates uh, quite a bit more tactically than the Chinese. And so I think the, the risk, you know, the, 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 the possibility or the potential for um, some, some kind of Russian exploitation of the situation is there. It's probably happening already. What would that look like? What would a Russian um, aggression look like? Oh, no, I think I think the uh, I guess what I, what I'm referring to is an attempt to magnify and amplify the differences internally in the United States. Uh, I don't see, if you like, you know, some new sudden act of um, you know continental aggression by Russia, because in many ways, uh, at the moment, uh, the R- Russia has most of what most of what it wants and needs and uh, and can handle. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, yet more pushing the envelope in cyber, uh, particularly, and that's... Um, uh, so, so really, it's a continuation, uh, but with the United States that's even less capable for that window of leading any kind of concerted pushback. And so you're talking about that uh, perhaps, um, you know, 
driving wedges into the United States discourse by, um, uh, you know, using Facebook and other social media channels and misinformation. Oh, absolutely, as, as, as Russia has, has, you know, quite definitively done for more than four years now and going back to, you know, actually pretty early in 2016. So you've talked about the China challenge and uh, that sort of that bipartisan, um, I suppose, the way that the United States is now treating uh, China as a strategic competitor. Um, turning, I suppose, to our neck of the woods here and how it impacts on Australia, I mean, how concerned should we be that, um, that we've got a, a rising authoritarian regime which, you know, is going to at least challenge the United States uh, militarily and certainly economically? How concerned is that just by, on, on, of itself? Look, the, the risk factor in China's rise has become much starker, much clearer to um, Australian policy makers uh, over the past few years. And I think there's now growing awareness in the public, in the political community, even in the business community about that. That would be the case regardless of whether um, Trump was in the White House or anyone else. And in some ways, despite um, the, uh, the recklessness and the confrontationalism of Trump, there's also, as I said, been that awakening in the United States recently, which is, which is a good thing. Either way, whatever happens in America uh, next week, uh, the China challenge isn't going to go away. Australia faces it more starkly as not only a, a developed country in the Indo-Pacific region and, a, and a, a very proud democracy, but a country that also is deeply enmeshed in so many ways with China economically at a societal level and so forth. And, and so much of that interaction has been over the years a net positive for Australia, but we're now focusing on the risk factor as well. Look, I think that we really need to understand Australia's journey on this uh, almost really on Australia's terms, on, on in terms of uh, actually quite an independent assertion of Australian interests, values and identity over the past four years and not, um, as some commentators have, have claimed, as some kind of proxy for our loyalty to America or some kind of, um, you know, deputy sheriff role. And I think, look, the good news is that there are senior uh, policy thinkers, uh, senior voices on both sides of politics across the political spectrum in Australia who recognise the necessity of Australia um, really adopting this quite assertive position of its own. That said, we've now reached a point, and I'd love to go into this in the conversation if you want to, uh, Misha, we've now reached a point where we've got to understand what a sustainable new normal looks like in the relationship with China and with Australia's relationship with China in the context of all the other regional relationships in the Indo-Pacific, because so much of Asia is not China, and I think a lot of um, commentators uh, conveniently overlook that sometimes. And so, well, I think that's a really good point. I certainly want to dig into, you know, engagement in the region more generally, but just sticking with China and the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, one of the things that gets discussed quite a bit is, um, uh, you know, Australia's relationship, you know, so much of it's focused on trade. Um, we sort of tend to split the trade relationship out along with the, um, with the uh, uh, defence sort of component or the, or the strategic concerns. I mean, you know, firstly, is that possible? Can we even separate the two anymore given the way we're seeing the Chinese Communist Party weaponising trade increasingly against Australia and others? And secondly, 
Um, should we be worried about upsetting China? I mean, or, and the Chinese Communist Party. So many people in the business community tend to say, well, um, you know, we need to just keep the dollars flowing. So, I mean, how do we handle those two components? I'll start with the second half of your question and go to the, the whole thing of the whole idea of hurting, hurting the feelings of the Chinese people, as we're sometimes accused of doing, and then go to the trade question. Look, I think the, the paramount consideration every time an Australian government looks at what to do in foreign relations, whether it's to do with China or any other country, is Australia's interests, values, and, and indeed I'd even use a term like national identity. What's, who are we as a country? You know, a, a liberal democracy, uh, proudly multicultural, uh, where our, our status as a pretty dynamic middle power is related to our, our identity in the world. Those things, I think, should be starting points for policy and diplomacy is not contrary to what some would suggest about um, at no costs hurting the feelings of the other country that you're dealing with because in the end, so much of the, the hurt feelings you encounter in diplomacy is really uh, something of a, a confection of outrage that countries will come up with for, I guess, negotiating advantage. Um, you know, China has a thicker skin than the Communist Party sometimes likes us to believe. Um, there is a lot of diplomatic game playing that goes on. And I think in many cases, especially if you look at the way nationalism has been fostered in China over the past 30 years by the party through, through sort of hardcore patriotic education, um, those, the, the, those sensitivities are deliberately cultivated so that um, our room for manoeuvre is less. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying, of course, we don't want to cause gratuitous offence. We don't want to go out of our way to poke any country or political system in the eye. But I don't think that the, um, the protestations of outrage by Chinese diplomats need to be the barometer for policy and importantly, uh, if you were to map, let's say, the last four to five years and map, for example, our trade patterns in, um, I guess, in the context of Australia standing up for a rules-based order in the region, in the South China Sea or elsewhere, Australia strengthening its own domestic infrastructure against foreign interference, as we've done with, with, with various laws over the last few years, in fact, in many instances and in the macro sense, trade has actually increased. Uh, so for most of that time, it is not as if there was a correlation between our independent policy stance and being punished in a trade sense. Now, that may be a different story this year and we can go to the, the coercion that's being used. But at the moment, uh, China hasn't pulled the really big levers, partly because it's operating in a global context where it knows, its leadership knows, that um, acting so coercively against one country is going to send a signal to others not to be frightened but to actually accelerate their, uh, their own diversification away from China. I'll come to your second point in a moment, if you like, about, about trade per se because just in a nutshell, um, you know, I think it's great that Australia has a very substantial trading relationship with China, as we should. It's also great that we have a whole range of growing trade and investment relationships. It's important to separate trade and investment in this regard, and I think most Australians do not realise that Australia is not heavily dependent 
on China for foreign investment and is probably not going to become heavily dependent on China for investment, and that's fine. Um, investment, I think, is much more a reflection of trust, whereas trade is a reflection of transaction. Yes, we have a major trading relationship, you know, by an order of magnitude, focused heavily on, on the iron ore trade. Uh, Australia is actually a less trade-dependent country, however, than many other developed countries uh, in the region and around the world. So trade as a proportion of GDP is actually less than most of us realise. doesn't mean China can't hurt us if it wants to. The imperative now, you know, nothing new or original to say here, really, Misha, but the imperative is diversification. Uh, not excluding China, but very much China plus and keeping in mind the question, what do we want Australia to look like 20 to 25 years from now? Do we still want to be a country uh, that relies for so much of its um, export income on essentially on uh, iron ore trade with China? I see that as a pretty uns unsustainable uh, one-dimensional policy in the long run. Do you think COVID-19 is a bit of a wake-up call in terms of our exposure on supply chains and over-reliance perhaps on you know, a commodities trade with one major country? Well, no question. I, mean, I think it's a wake-up call on so many fronts and for all of the, the damage that it's done and all of the distress that it's brought, it's also an opportunity for government now to build a much more united national approach, dare I call it a united front, uh, with <laughs> industry, with civil society to, to, to begin a conversation about what does the resilient Australia we want for the next generation actually look like? And, you know, at what point do we, um, if you like, start to focus more on security and less on the, um, you know, the factors of efficiency and cost that have just been, um, been allowed to be so paramount for the past few decades? And so, look, we talked a bit about, I suppose, specific nations. One of the things that you know, the big emerging challenges that we're seeing now is sort of return of systems competition. You know, democracies uh, was, you know, democracy with uh, sort of, I suppose, liberal econ economics has been the dominant ideology for the last 30 or 40 years. Um, now we're seeing sort of the rise of authoritarianism. Um, democracies are, you know, certainly not expanding on the slide around the world yeah. and perhaps is on the slide in some nations that have been dem democratic for a very long time. Um, you know, how... Concerned are you about this systems competition? Do you think it's a function of may the best system win or do you think that democracies need to get their houses in order to a degree? Well, I mean, you can say both of those things if, if you like. I mean, I think democracies have had and are having a very rude wake-up call. Those of us who um, believe uh, very firmly not only in, uh, you know, in democracy or liberal democracy really as a system uh, under which we like to live uh, and really which in so many ways uh, makes makes life worth living, but also who recognise that this is not exclusively some kind of Western system, that in fact uh, societies, uh, human societies all around the world um, have the right to the kinds of freedoms uh, that, let's face it, you know, are, are, are there in the, uh, in, in, in the UN Charter and various UN declarations in that hopeful post-Second World War era. In other words, um, democracy has a home in Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, in, in Africa, in so much of the world other than just the, the so-called West. It's, it's a time when we really have to 
take stock and uh, think much harder about what is worth defending and how to defend it. I would um, I, I would say that, um, like the French Revolution, it's a bit too early to tell whether democracy is actually in decline. I mean, if you look at the sentiment on streets of Hong Kong, uh, the streets of yep. Minsk, uh, the streets of Bangkok, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the, really the movements of, um, of people power uh, over the last really 12 to 24 months uh, in the United States, in Europe, in the Middle East, that appetite for um, some kind of basic dignity through civil freedoms has not gone away and through participation and essentially, you know, choice about how you were ruled and, and, and who rules you. So, and, and I would add also, incidentally, the um, uh, the exceptional example we've seen of Taiwan this year, both in its resistance to interference in its uh, democratic election uh, at the start of the year and the way in which it succeeded uh, in setting the global standard for dealing with the pandemic within a democratic framework. So I certainly think we need to play the long game uh, in protection and advancement of democracy. In a country like Australia, we need to do that with humility as well. We're, we're not uh, aggressively proselytising, and nor should we, but we shouldn't uh, be. We shouldn't feel insecure or unconfident about it either. Um, I think if we look over the next ten to twenty years. Uh, Democracy is going to adapt, and we just have to find ways to um, to help that adaptation. I, I agree with you about the universality of democracy, and I think you know the the protests in Hong Kong and the uh, the incredible election result in Taiwan was certainly affirming um, that people th these are universal rights that everyone hopes. So it's not a, a Western conceit that the you know, people would like to say, "Oh, well, these nations have no history of democracy, therefore they don't want it," um, which I think is a, you know is a nonsense, but. You've touched on, we, we talked about Russia and interference in the United States, but you've talked about uh, CCP interference in Taiwan. Obviously, we've had quite a bit in Australia. I mean, how concerned are you about foreign interference and the concept of political warfare more generally, which is, I suppose, the weaponisation of all elements of society? You know, we've got this sort of total integration now of our systems where um, once upon a time, perhaps in Cold War, there was competing systems, but they were very much separate. Now they're woven into one another. It makes it hard to to grapple with all the different ways that you've got touch points, which are also leverage points. I mean, how concerned are you about that um, in terms of democracies, um, you know, being able to yeah. maintain their own integrity? Yeah, look, there is, you know, there obviously is a, um, a, look, there's a degree of attack, but also there's a degree of now waking up to the fact that we've been under attack for a long time. And so, you know, if you look at the, for example, the, um, I think, very credible reports about uh, CCP, interference but also influence operations in Australia over many years uh, and I should hasten to add that you know influence isn't necessarily a criminal thing it's it's I mean diplomats do influence as part of their job it's when it spills over into interference uh, you know involving particularly corrupting conduct or coercive or clandestine conduct that, that we've got a different um, a different situation. I think so. I think we're, there's much greater awareness of these issues now. Um, there's much greater vigilance. I think the challenge we've got ahead is uh, to ensure that this is not simply a government thing. This is not simply security agencies telling people uh, they have a problem, telling parliamentarians they have a problem, 
and almost compelling them to do something about it. It's it's got to be a much more inclusive uh, and voluntary, voluntary thing about you know cherishing what we've got. I think there are some some positive signs there, and I do think that the more we can encourage bipartisanship on this, the better. I think that these are issues that actually have to be owned by the centre of Australian politics and, and owned by the moderate centre of Australian politics. Um, but I think, for example, the more that we see uh, communities uh, cherishing that right to not only mobilise and participate in, um, in the democratic process in elections, but also apply scrutiny to um, voices within their own ranks who take certain views and apply scrutiny not in a kind of, you know, ASIO way, but in a uh, much more a kind of um, uh, free contest of ideas, um, media investigation, uh, then, I, then I think we're going to... We're going to get through this. I worry a little bit about, uh, in fact, I worry quite a lot about the the risk of stigmatising parts of the Australian population and certainly stigmatising some people in Chinese-Australian communities. And, and, you know, there was, I think, that personally, I think that quite unhelpful um, intervention by Senator Abetz on this the other week. Yep. I think in many ways the, the centre in the debate has already shifted sufficiently that the scene is going to be set for communities to start, if you like, scrutinising themselves and uh, for media to take, uh, you know, a continued interest. And so, I'm again, I'm moderately um, positive about our ability to get through this. However, um, if we see a hard partisan um, polarisation on these issues, uh, for example, one part, one side of politics saying we're the we're the side of politics that's in favour of a good relationship with China. This other side is is not. Uh, you know, accusations uh, of racism uh, on either side. Anything that mirrors the kind of talking points we hear coming out of Beijing or echoed in the Chinese state propaganda, that's when we're going to have um, have a challenge. One last point, though, I'll make, Nisha, and that is about uh, the Australian electoral process as well. One area where we've seen I think um, exploitation within the United States and elsewhere uh, by foreign actors of the democratic process is by amplifying any kind of criticism of the process itself by one side or other of politics. Anything that undermines the credibility of the um, institutions themselves, the credibility of electoral systems. That's uh, a convoluted way of saying that I hope that in the Australian system where we do have such a uh, such a professional uh, and impartial and credible electoral commission, what I'd hope to see in future elections in Australia is continued restraint on the part of Australian political parties so that, that whatever they do, they don't cast the electoral, the integrity of the electoral process in doubt, because that is one of the the vectors through which uh, foreign foreign interference operations would then, um, if you like, seek to magnify and cause harm. So you mean in the sense, yeah, I completely agree. You, you certainly don't want to delegitimize your own system, um, and and uh, it's certainly quite stark what we're seeing in the United States in terms of, you know, the Russians uh, certainly couldn't hope for so much propaganda about the failures of the voting system in the United States. Unfortunately, coming from the U.S. president at the moment is uh, quite extraordinary. Absolutely. 
Um, just, you know, just wanted to dig in a little bit into, because um, I, I certainly share your concerns about um, uh, the demonization of Chinese Australians or even Chinese re- people that, uh, that are Chinese citizens studying in Australia, et cetera. How do you balance off the challenge where you know that, um, you know, and this is particular to the attitude of the Chinese Communist Party, which itself deems the uh, the Chinese diaspora, not just in Australia, but around the world, to be part of its, I suppose, domain. Uh, and they certainly exert a lot of pressure and a highly active Athena United Front Works Department in those communities. How do we balance off that activity as well as making sure that we're not demonising um, and, and, and using sort of, I suppose, improper uh, rhetoric when discussing this challenge? Well, that's firstly where I think the, um, uh, you know, the quality of a lot of Australian Australian investigative journalism has really been a major national asset. It's almost been a kind of a, a contribution we've made to friends and partners overseas, to the Five Eyes and other democracies as a kind of early warning system. And I think it has shifted um, public perception. I think that the... Um, the greater public awareness of that, that you need to question the, you know, not not accuse but seek clarity on the motives uh, of certain interventions in Australian politics or certain interventions in community affairs, uh, I think it's quite reasonable. I think that the, um, the proper resourcing of government agencies to conduct outreach to civil society, to business, even to universities, uh, is going to be a really important part of the solution. Because what you want in the end is civil society, business, universities, all of these other players um, basically being proactive and demonstrating um, the you know the integrity of their systems, uh, so that we can avoid and minimise anything that looks like um, taking a, I guess, a, a, you know, a much more um, forceful approach. Sooner or later, there are likely to be prosecutions, for example, under the foreign interference laws, but we don't want that to, be, uh, to become the norm. We want that to be, you know, the exception. And so, I mean, just to round this sort of part of the conversation out, I mean, one of the things I think is the big challenge here is lack of reciprocity between the systems and open. We've essentially seen a weaponization of the openness of Western liberal societies and our openness of our systems, our discourse, our uh, yeah, the economics. All these things have been sort of shifted. I mean, how do open systems beat closed systems? Because the, you know the thesis before was that closed systems are brittle um, yeah. and they collapse. Now it seems that um, because they're so open to so many vectors that um, a, a concentrated effort from a, uh, you know, a regime that means you harm can be quite challenging to deal with. I mean, how do you see that challenge? Yeah, look, I think, the, uh, I think reciprocity is important. I think we, we, we certainly have to be careful about anything that looks like, uh, if you like, threatening, um, you know, threatening some kind of interference in other societies. I don't think that uh, it, it, it's a sane or sensible policy to be saying, for example, to the Chinese Communist Party, well, you know, the more that we see you active in our system, we, we, we reserve the right to um, sow discord and dissent on your soil. That's, that's going to be a losing game. But simply by protecting the sanctuary within our own systems for dissenting voices, by making it absolutely clear that we're not going to allow, for example, um, 
free expression to be shut down in parts of our society by a foreign actor, as uh, has been attempted, I think, uh, by the CCP occasionally in, um, in diaspora communities in Australia as elsewhere. We're actually um, taking a defensive measure that I think is quite, is quite sustainable. And so it's also, I guess, I guess it's about setting, setting limits. You know, it's not about achieving any kind of absolute victory. It's just about demonstrating that our system will survive, will be resilient, uh, and that we will, um, we will not be afraid of, if you like, attributing, pointing out what's occurring, um, but also um, also set, setting limits. I, I, I think it's. I, I don't think there's a guaranteed win for authoritarianism here. I, I've sort of meandered on this a little bit, um, but you might want to also think about time frame because, in many ways, uh, there's now this new myth that time is on the side of authoritarian. States and of course, 15, yeah. 20 years ago, as you were saying, you know there was this um, naive belief that uh, the internet, for example, would um, would be this you know this magic bullet for, for democratic freedoms everywhere. Yeah, Bill Clinton, you know, said yeah, but we but we swung around now to this idea that time is automatically on the side of authoritarian systems. So it's really up to uh, democracies, whether it's uh, Australia, whether it's in Europe, whether it's uh, in, in America, whether it's in Asia. Uh, to to demonstrate their own adaptability, and I'd say if you you know I see this as a ten to twenty year sort of long contest. Uh, in some ways, this is, in some ways, the playing field could look quite different, especially in a decade or so from now. Especially, and this is a missing link, especially if you can build greater solidarity among the democracies and how they push back. And we're seeing the the kernel of that solidarity already. Uh, there's no end of discussions now among um, evolving groupings. You know, the, the Quad uh, in the Indo-Pacific, the, um, the obviously the Five Eyes, uh, you know, intelligence partners now widening their, their scope. But even um, institutions like a so-called D10 of democracies, not a formal government-to-government relationship yet, but a so-called 1.5-track arrangement of 10 of the world's leading democracies where... Policymakers and experts uh, and commentators uh, get together quite regularly now to exchange notes on how to manage the authoritarian challenge. Uh, I think we'll see a lot more of that and we will begin to see uh, concerted, not so much pushback, but concerted um, setting of limitations by these countries. And uh, whether it's on issues like hostage diplomacy, as Australia and Canada have suffered, whether it's on issues like um, how to build best practice in uh, limiting foreign interference, whether it's on issues like building alternative supply chains uh, in areas such as critical minerals. Uh, there are a whole lot of areas where if we stay the course over about the next five to ten years or beyond, uh, the democracies will end up, I think, in, um, in a sufficiently strong and stable position and a lot of the contradictions within authoritarian countries uh, are likely to um, to become more difficult for them to manage. So that's actually one thing you've sort of uh, stumbled into the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is about you've been talking a lot about this concept of mini-lateralism. So, you know, um, essentially small groupings getting together like-minded nations more than just bilateral. But, I mean, do you see essentially things 
true multilateralism, is that basically dead, do you think, in, the, in a modern context? Or are we going to have to rely on things like a D10 or the five eyes, a deeper five eyes or, um, you know, or, or things of that nature? Look, it's certainly too soon to say that um, multilateralism is dead. That is, you know, the inclusive multilateralism of the United Nations or big regional organisations where simply by being part of the region, you're almost sort of automatically entitled to membership. So, of course, we have all of the ASEAN-centric institutions here in the Indo-Pacific. We have uh, the EU. Uh, we have you know, organisations that that have built up over time to accommodate the widest possible range of, um, of interests. Minilateralism, and for the benefit of your listeners, it's you know, small self-selecting groups of three or more countries, um, bigger than bilateral but smaller than multilateral. I think that is the trend of the times, and we've seen that in everything from the trilaterals and the quadrilateral security dialogue uh, right through to the way in which small groups are getting together to share best practice on COVID response, the way in which the Five Eyes intelligence partners are expanding to a whole geoeconomic agenda. Now, that's because uh, it's it's easiest or it's more it's most effective for small groups to select one another on the basis of having interests in common, having capabilities that they can bring to the table, and having the political will uh, to to work together. Um, but all of these layers of diplomacy will keep working, I think, uh, in a loose kind of, um, of concert. I would only call time on, I would call time on the, I guess, the international rules-based order or the multilateral system if you had essentially a wholesale defection. You know, whatever China uh, and Russia are doing, we haven't yet had the equivalent of a, an imperial Japan walking out of the League of Nations, you know, as it did in 1933. So, what would something like that? So, what 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 does that red line look like to your mind? What is the red? Well, I mean, it, I think it. I think it would. And of course, some would say that in fact the country that's been calling time on multilateralism has been the United States, <laughs> rather um, than, under Trump, rather than the Russians or the Chinese. Even though so much of what Russia and China does is about double standards and about saying one thing and, um, and, and, and doing another. Look, I think a lot of it does would, would relate to a, um, a comprehensive act of international aggression uh, where major powers essentially uh, it, it either took sides or uh, took uh, that as a final warning that they would have to um, greatly reduce their exposure to one another. And so, you know, a, uh, a fully-fledged armed attack on Taiwan, a fully-fledged uh, outbreak of hostilities between China and another major country, not necessarily China and the United, Sp United States, but, for example, China and India, China and Japan, uh, I'd see those as, you know, pretty, pretty clear breakpoints. Uh, likewise, uh, you know, over Russian aggression um, against uh, European countries, uh, you know, I think we've seen something beyond the grey zone that we've, yeah. that we've seen in Ukraine and elsewhere. So, so I think we're still not at that point. I think there's a real possibility in the next 10 years that we'll get to that point, but it's not at all inevitable and I guess I'd like to think that um, the um, the US election in the next week or two could be the beginning of a point uh, towards stemming that risk, especially if we see 
the United States um, begin to um, show a bit more respect for the system that it um, that it established in the first place. Do you, now, you've talked about multilateralism. One of the ones that gets focused on a lot, or is getting more attention now, is the so-called Quad, yeah. uh, which is Australia, the United States, India, and Japan. Um, China's very displeased uh, about this arrangement. I mean, how? What sort of hopes do you have for the Quad? Do you think it's it, it can be a significant player um, in, in addressing these challenges we've talked about? So yeah, I, I've written um, quite a bit about the Quad. Uh, recent article in Australian Foreign Affairs, and the Quad features pretty heavily in my book on the um, the Indo Pacific. What's um, it called, mate? Feel free to plug it. Oh, oh we'll do that. We'll, we'll get there, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so the Quad is not what its critics often claim it to be. Some critics say that its problem is that it's going to become an Asian NATO. In other words, it's a, an alliance, a formal, it's, it's the, the basis of a formal alliance that will, quote, contain China and provoke China into all sorts of things like military modernisation, um, assertiveness and so forth. Things, incidentally, that China's already... I was going to say they're already happening. So. Yeah, and that's, that's... So, you know, as soon as since the last 15 years proves, if you like, or the 13 years since the Quad was originally conceived, proves that in the Quad's absence, because from 20 to 2008 to 2017 there was no Quad, in the Quad's absence, pretty much all of the, um, the troubling things uh, that the Quad was supposed to provoke have actually taken place. So the Quad is not um, now or in the foreseeable future a hard alliance. On the other hand, nor is it a, you know, a flimsy, meaningless conversation because critics also say, well, what's the point of this since when the chips are down for countries with as somewhat disparate interests as America, Japan, India and Australia are not going to uh, take fundamental risks on one another's behalf. They're not going to be true allies. So what's the point? However, most of what happens in statecraft and diplomacy happens in between, you know, the extremes of... uh, golden peace and, you know, total war. Um, there's lots of assertiveness and coercion and negotiation and second-guessing that takes place. And the Quad uh, and, and other minilateral institutions provides, I think, a really flexible vehicle for all of those issues in between where you want to start showing uh, gradations of solidarity, gradations of resolve. You want to demonstrate to a country like China that the more it throws its weight around against individual states in the Indo-Pacific, the more it's going to encourage uh, states to trust one another far more uh, than they will trust China. And as for practical cooperation, we're really only at the very beginning. You know, we've seen in the last two or three years not only the rebirth of the Quad going very quickly to a ministerial-level dialogue, now to military exercises, the um, the Malabar naval exercise that Australia's been admitted to, uh, but there appears to be lots of behind-the-scenes and actually fairly upfront diplomacy occurring on issues like uh, supply chain security, uh, COVID response, uh, critical minerals, cyber, critical technologies. In other words, the Quad's creating a new infrastructure of trust for the next 10 years or more. And it's sending a signal, I think, uh, to other countries in the region that it's possible to build these new coalitions of trust. I'd like to see the Quad build its own additional relationships with, for example, Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam or Indonesia uh, that have a lot 
at stake and a lot to offer, maybe with European partners, France and Britain, who are playing back into the Indo-Pacific in a big way. So let's 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 just see where we can get with this thing. Um, I don't think the Indians, and the Indians are critical in this, are under any illusion that were a conflict to flare up on the border with China again tomorrow, that the Quad would be parachuting troops in from its member countries to hold the line. But at the same time, I think increasingly you'll see uh, intelligence sharing, uh, economics, you know, geoeconomic support for one another on, on supply chains, on, uh, on uh, resilient infrastructure, on cyber that will actually help individual countries like India build their capability to protect themselves, protect their sovereignty. And that's enough, in my view. So let's talk about India, because let's switch back to bilateralism. Um, it's probably a country that, you know, I know you've talked about it quite a bit. Increasingly, others are talking about it. There was a, a, a report commissioned uh, by the government a couple of years ago about looking at deepening economic ties uh, with India. I mean, what's your view? I mean, is, are we underdone um, in, uh, in the sort of uh, the relationship from a strategic point of view? And, and how can we deepen it? Why does it matter? Look, India matters. And I think what I'm pleased about with the way the, um, the strategic dialogues have evolved in the last few years is that no one in Australia really questions anymore uh, that India is important. It's just that we have trouble still quite coming to terms with it, quite knowing the right, um, the right line of engagement because India is big, it is complex, you know, it, it, it's untidy. And that's, that's no surprise for anyone. Uh, I think one of the reasons why I've actually got a certain respect for India's achievements over the past um, 70 years or more really is that uh, when you think of all India's problems, you've also got to think of what an extraordinary challenge it is to manage such a large and diverse uh, society uh, within a single democratic framework. You know, if, if, if you were to take um, the entire American continent and Europe and a good chunk of the Middle East and treat that as one federated democracy, that would be less diverse um, than India, certainly wow. linguistically or culturally, and roughly the same population. So that's that's the political challenge, and that's actually the political achievement that India um, has demonstrated. Yes, its democracy is imperfect. Um, yes, I'm worried a bit about the the illiberal turn that parts of um, the Indian polity have taken in the past few years. But um, India has enormous resilience. It's a very anti-fragile country in a way. And I'm, I'm reasonably confident that it will, it will chart its own path. So we want to think really about India over, again, over a generational time frame. You know, a large proportion of the world's youth are uh, in India, the future uh, workforce, the future unemployed, however you want, you want to see it. Uh, we want to help India achieve as much of its potential as we can uh, while respecting uh, its democratic institutions and traditions and without placing, I think, unrealistic expectations such as that India and Australia are going to become formal treaty allies um, anytime soon. And we shouldn't, and I'll pause on this point, we shouldn't project on India the, the mythology that somehow it's going to be the next China, that it will have within the next you know, number of years uh, as spectacular an economic rise as China had in recent decades because uh, 
democracy means, and the nature of Indian democracy means that, in a sense, um, India fails every day, but it keeps going. Whereas I would say that in China, we've seen a spectacular achievement at the at enormous cost to human rights. And if China uh, in some way fails, it's going to do so spectacularly. So that's how I'd see India. We've got to be patient. Uh, we've started on this on this journey. We've got you know many years to uh, to go. And so, just quickly, one last point on on India and China, because you talked about uh, demography there in India. I mean, one of the things that uh, that China is struggling with is its demographic destiny with the one-child policy. It's going to be old before it gets rich. Do you think India has inbuilt advantages on that basis? Look, it does, but it's there's you know there is there's potential for an extraordinary demographic dividend or something of a demographic disaster as well. And so, it really is about um, employment, education, and dignity for this extraordinary, um, th- th- this extraordinary uh, Indian youth, uh, youth demographic. I would say that um, on balance, the you know the, the creativity that we've seen uh, over over many years now among younger generations of Indians, not only in India but in diaspora communities all around the world, is going to provide India with a pretty significant advantage, but it is going to take uh, further reform economically. It's going to take a um, uh, pretty high degrees of mutual respect and tolerance inside the Indian political system. And so that's where uh, the role of decision and leadership is going to matter in the years ahead. And that's where uh, it's it's going to be important, firstly, for India to reinvigorate its democracy to have a um, a more effective opposition, if you like, because um, one reason that Modi has done so well is that the the Congress Party, uh, which has now become the main party of opposition, used to be the natural party of government, really hasn't um, reinvigorated itself, hasn't got beyond its dynastic dependence um, on the Nehru Gandhi dynasty. We've also seen, I think, um, a lot of the the talent of young Indians go into the private sector, and that's a good thing, but we now need to see uh, the Indian state and the Indian private sector work more closely together within a democratic framework. So, you know, lots of uncertainties there, uh, but I think Australia is absolutely right to be investing in the relationship as long as we keep our expectations tempered. And one last uh, regional scan around the place, I mean, and uh, we'll have to keep it short because I know you, you um, your time is uh, precious. But Indonesia, again, probably a, a, a nation state that is massively under in its discussion in Australia other than perhaps uh, Bali trips. Um, you know, how do you see that relationship and what's its relevance in, you know, to Australia and also to the region? So I just, I'll, I'll link Indonesia and India in this in this sentence, if you like, because there's obviously certain things they have in common that aren't respected enough in Australia beyond the policy class. And I would actually say that our policymakers, particularly our diplomats, generally get India and Indonesia now. Um, I used to despair that sort of 20 years ago, our diplomats generally didn't appreciate uh, India's potential, uh, but we've always, our officials have always known that um, Indonesia is important. 
What we need to do, though, is to get that awareness beyond Canberra and beyond the, the bureaucratic and diplomatic and, and indeed political elite. And India has the advantage in a way because there is now such a strong people-to-people uh, -people link, such a strong societal connection between India and Australia or between really South Asia and Australia um, that, you know, a cultural understanding of what India is and where it's going is becoming, I think, pretty um, pretty grounded in Australian society. So the same has not happened for Indonesia. And in fact, there are still other Southeast Asian societies or Southeast Asian diaspora communities that are very uh, established in Australia, such as um, uh, from Vietnam, for example, but we don't have the same popular perception of what Indonesia is or what it can be. So there is hard work for government and business still ahead on this. And I would say that that really needs to be a priority because Indonesia uh, is at the centre of our region. I mean, I, I'll plug my book here, Bisha, if you don't mind. Uh, please do. My argument in the book contest for the Indo-Pacific is not, uh, is not as some people would, would argue, is, is, is not that, um, you know, all of the region's problems are about China or that India is the magical solution. It's a much more nuanced argument than that. But I do make the argument that middle powers and middle players, countries that are not China and not the United States by working together, are going to really provide the best hope of holding the line while either the United States gets its house in order or we work through the next 20 years or so and China discovers the limits uh, of its own ambition. Indonesia is going to be important in that game because Geographically, it's at the crossroads of this maritime region, the Indo-Pacific, so much of the trade uh, and commerce uh, that all of our nations depend on, even now, because de-globalisation is only going to be ever a partial thing. Um, you know, maritime trade this year has actually increased despite COVID, which I found a fascinating data point. Indonesia is at that crossroads. And secondly, Indonesia as a democracy and as actually a, um, a pretty multicultural democracy, you know, uh, with, with a Muslim majority, Indonesia has the potential to be um, a leader and the natural leader in Southeast Asia and occasionally is showing signs uh, that it's willing to do, to do that. So um, diplomatically, we should work with Indonesia at least as much as we're doing, probably more so. Uh, but the missing link is still finding that societal and cultural connection and really uh, encouraging our business community to, um, to bet on Indonesia and bet on Indonesia's own youth uh, dividend uh, that it has uh, just like India. Well, uh, Rory, I could go all day with this, as uh, you well know, and everyone that listens to my podcast know that I can go all day on these things. But uh, now it's time for one of my famous clunky segues to the fun part of the show, and I know that you can't wait to answer these questions. But a, uh, a barbecue at Rory's where you plug in your book, um, three foreigners coming along. I'm sure that uh, the, I'm quite interested in your answer, actually. So three foreigners, alive or dead, come to a barbecue at yours. Who are they and why? That's a yeah. I'll be curious to know what answers you put out of others for that um, that that rather um, uh, fascinating um, contrived question. <laughs> well, the Americans um, the Americans can be a bit hit and miss depending, but uh, I'm sure they won't mind me saying that. Sometimes they say Russell Crowe, which I have to always point out to them uh, is a Kiwi. But, that's uh, right. Well, he's a foreigner. So uh, no, look, I'd um, for start. 
because we're talking about international uh, in, in international attendance at my, my special barbecue, it's going to be probably a uh, halal barbecue with vegetarian options uh, to Very respect good. that cultural diversity. And most of the most of the people I'd love to have uh, the conversation with that I that I can't have um, are people who aren't with us anymore. So there'd be uh, there's a few uh, famous or forgotten names, particularly from the 20th century, who I'd love to see at my barbecue. Uh, I'd certainly want a few thinkers, a few big thinkers there. Uh, so um, people like Hannah Arendt or Isaiah Berlin, who are some of I think the great anti-totalitarian thinkers of the um of the 20th century i'd um i'd love to have uh, i'd love to have a couple of um great statesmen or, or or leaders uh from the 20th century particularly those who um we're not always quite so aware of so for example um gustav uh Mannerheim, who was really the um the the great leader of independent finland in the early 20th century uh, and, um, you know, apart from anything else, not only uh, led many aspects of Finnish independence, but um, fought the Winter War uh, against against the Russians. Um, so someone who, I guess a bit like Lee Kuan Yew in a, in a somewhat more democratic setting, uh, really helped a small country to make its way in the world. And then finally, I think there'd be some, it'd be great to connect with some voices from our region, uh, from Indonesia or India in particular, and um, I'd um, I, I, I'd enjoy seeing, for example, um, uh, three generations of um, one of um, I think the uh, the most accomplished Indian families. Uh, so the current Indian External Affairs Minister, uh, Jai Shankar, um, his son Dhruva, who's a great Indian security thinker, and in fact um, uh, Dhruva's uh, late grandfather, K. Subramanian, who was um, uh, a great thinker in India's strategic journey uh, from the 1970s onwards. Uh, it's a pretty eclectic mix, Misha. Um, expect otherwise from a man. That's learning, the conversation so. I'd love to have about really how do you, you know, how do you advance the interests of your country in a really contested world uh, while staying true to your values? Well, I think that, uh, that they'd certainly have plenty to teach us based on the conversation we've just had so i think that's a perfect place to leave it rory metcalf thank you so much for joining us on diplomates thank you g'day diplomates fans um as i did last time i said i was going to answer questions i've got a question here from andrew andrew's asked me uh misha you work in trade unions is there a role for trade unions in geopolitical uh, contests such as the topics that you discuss on your show regularly uh, thank you for your question. Um, firstly, yes, I, I mean, well, first, two things. First thing is that trade unions, I mean, already are very active globally. Uh, you know, unions coordinate with one another through global federations of unions, and it's not uncommon for campaigns to be run globally. And I mean, you know, the basic thesis is, you know, if global uh, business is global, capital is global, so should uh, union labor organization. So that's that kind of basic principle. But I think at a deeper question, I think, you know, the, what the question is probably asking, um, if I can infer it, is, you know, can, uh, you know, can labor unions, free democratic labor unions around the world uh, coordinate their actions um, to assist, I suppose, in this struggle between democracies and autocracies? The answer is yes. Um, you know, human rights, labor rights are deeply entwined. Um, I think it's critical going forward that we have a greater prosecution of human rights. 
Um, and you know, unions clearly have a role to play in that. I mean, a tangible example, um, it's a little while ago now, but a tangible example is the role that Bob Hawke, the Australian union movement and the global union movement had in uh, bringing down apartheid. Um, I won't go into it now because it's a, it's a long conversation, but if you look into that, um, you can see the power that union movement can have. And I think coordinating um, amongst people, people-to-people contact is a good thing. Uh, coordination, organized labor coordination um, can only strengthen, I suppose, the connective tissue between democracies. And so, um, you know, in this conversation, uh, uh, you know, Rory talked a lot about coordination. And so you need to coordinate, I think, below, you know, governments need to coordinate, but we need to coordinate through civil society. We need to coordinate informally through networks. The deeper that coordination, the thicker those connections and, and, and the uh, more powerful those networks become over time. And so, you know, it's more than just relationships between governments or between particular leaders. So there's my rather lengthy answer. Uh, I hope it satisfies you. If you did enjoy the show, jump on Twitter, jump on Facebook, jump on Instagram, um, interact with me there. It's at Diplomate Show or at Misha Zielinski. It's in the show notes. Um, I'm enjoying all the comments that I get. It really is interesting. If you do have a question, um, either shoot it to me on Twitter uh, or you can DM me. Uh, I do enjoy getting questions, so and I'm, I'm happy to answer them. Also, if you have questions for guests that you'd like me to ask, feel free to shoot them through. Uh, if you haven't done it, if you haven't done your homework, jump on, five-star review. It really does help. Um, it, it's really actually significantly got the word of the show out, and so I really appreciate that. 30 episodes in, um, it's very, very well, surprisingly, a very well high-rated um, on uh, on on Apple uh, Podcast Store and other uh, podcast apps. So um, please keep doing that. Thank you so much. See you next time. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.